I'm Bill Castle, and this is Free Expression. This program is all about conveying the Christian message from a Catholic point of view and defending the liberty which makes it possible to do that. We talk with creative, interesting people about fighting restriction of online speech and using social networks for evangelization and other faith messaging. Join us, sit back, and enjoy some free expression. It's hard for a lot of people to take the idea of censorship seriously. We're accustomed to being able to express ourselves freely. The First Amendment is as much an icon of the American way of life as motherhood and apple pie. How can anyone really say we're not free to speak our minds? Is this all just some kind of conspiracy theory? But the COVID lockdowns, the Twitter files, and other revealing experiences have provided clear and definite proof that there are forces trying to limit what we can say and what information can be shared. How is this alleged speech suppression being done? Who's doing it? And perhaps most important, how can we resist it and safeguard freedom of expression for the long term? Casey Norman is a litigation attorney for the New Civil Liberties Alliance. That's a nonprofit public interest law firm that's dedicated to fighting the encroachments of government agencies into our lives. Casey, thanks very much for taking time to speak with us. Thanks so much for having me on. If you could, please give us an overview of how free speech is being limited these days. I um, I work at NCLA, as you mentioned, and we have taken on a few cases that deal with exactly that, with the ways that the federal government has involved itself in speech posted on social media platforms like Facebook, Twitter, um, YouTube, those kinds of things, and have heavily pressured, influenced, and collaborated with private parties and with the social media companies themselves to suppress, silence, censor specific viewpoints, certain disfavored voices on the platforms. And as you mentioned, we've seen a lot of it that's related to COVID-19, the pandemic, right. uh, and specifically in one of the cases I'm working on as related to those who've been injured after taking the, the COVID vaccine. It strikes me initially that, that this is totally in violation of the First Amendment. The government isn't supposed to be able to do this, yet they have co-opted these private companies. I mean, doesn't that just duplicate the, <laughs> the illegality of the whole thing? Yeah, that's that is my view exactly. But it's been it's been tricky because they do the federal government agencies who've been involved with this have done it very quietly and privately and until recently with one of the cases that were involved in called Missouri v. Biden. In that case a bunch of information was produced that showed, you know, thousands of emails, phone calls, meetings that were set up between these government entities and the social media um, executives and actors. That shows, you know, all of this pressure and coordination. But before then, the government denied its involvement. It said, you know what, this is, this is not anything to do with the government. These are the private companies' independent decisions, so no First Amendment violation there. But we have, we've seen otherwise now. Yeah, it's pretty clear that there's a heavy hand behind the scenes there. But what has always puzzled me is really what's in it for the companies? I don't understand it. What do they get out of it? Why do they wish to participate in this? 
we've seen for, for a large part of it is that they initially did not want to participate in this. If you look at some of the information that we've seen come out of Missouri v. Biden or the Twitter files, for instance, you will see initially emails from you know Twitter executives, Facebook actors saying, we don't feel comfortable deleting that. That doesn't violate our policies. Why would we do such a thing? Hmm. And then you see this relentless, dogged pressure coming from you know White House officials, coming from the Department of Homeland Security, uh, various government agencies saying, you need to do this. You need to do this now. Um, there will be consequences if you don't, you know, threatening antitrust changes, Section 230, you know, repealing the, the um, statute that protects social media companies vis-a-vis uh, -vis content moderation on their platforms, all kinds of threats, whether direct or indirect. And you see this relentless pressure start to change the approach of these social media companies and the way that they treat certain voices in content that's posted on their platforms. I guess the other side of that is then what is in it for the government authorities who are exerting this pressure? Is it is it just a, a lusting for power or is it a, an effort to change the, the nature of our government, the relationship between government and citizens? What's really going on? Yeah, so it seems as though the types of speech we're seeing targeted, for for example, COVID-related speech or vaccine-related speech, we see one side being suppressed and not the other. And the side that's being suppressed is generally the narrative that the government doesn't prefer, that's questioning the government's preferred policies. They want people to comply with the lockdown or with masking mandates or, you know, with taking the COVID vaccine. And if anyone questions that, even, you know, post it on their personal social media accounts, even, you know, for example, epidemiologists who, who post about their fields of expertise uh, with regard to the lockdowns and COVID, even that kind of speech, it threatens the government's policies, it questions it. So I think that's primarily what motivates them to suppress the other side of the debate. When they reduce visibility, people aren't exposed to ideas. They're not thinking about it in the first place or thinking to question any of it. The primary interest of this show and, and my radio station, it's, it's clearly the, the question of religious speech. Are there implications in any of this for suppression of preaching, evangelization, uh, commentary about traditional moral values? Should people of faith be worried about this? Yeah, I would say, um, the, you know, the cases I've worked on, of course, don't concern religious speech, but I don't think that this, the concern should be limited to those, for instance, who were injured by the COVID vaccine. We're seeing a very real danger we're facing from our own government in its treatment generally of free speech and what the First Amendment means. You know, it's meant to protect us, all American citizens, from the government and its suppression of speech, whether that's certain religious values or something related to COVID. But what we're seeing here with, this, with these cases is that the government doesn't view the First Amendment in that way at all. You know, it's, in, it's increasingly treating free speech as something that's dangerous and that the government needs to, to filter and curate before it can reach our eyes years. And I don't think there's any reason to believe that what we're seeing in Missouri v. Biden or Justin v. Flaherty is going to be an isolated incident. I think any potential source of, or narrative that's counter to what the government prefers in any given day or any given year could be threatened. And, you know, it's a slippery slope. If we allow them to overstep and infringe our rights in this way, it's going to get easier and easier in the future for them to, you know, feel comfortable doing this to others. So I, w I would say everyone should be concerned. And though I haven't seen specific Catholic, Catholic speech being suppressed, I, you know, again, <laughs> this is a threat to everyone in this country. Where are we now? Have we gone so far down the slippery slope that we, we can't come back, or is there a chance to reverse this trend? I think what we're seeing with these 
cases uh, is very promising. I'm hopeful about it. I think the government operated in a way in which it didn't believe it was going to be exposed. And, you know, all this information that I mentioned coming out of Missouri v. Biden, you can tell by these emails, some of which are very unhinged, almost comically <laughs> angry with, you know, the pressure that is being imposed on these social media companies. You get the sense that they didn't think that all of this would be, you know, made public and that the litigation would reach such a stage where this, all of this would be exposed to everyone. So I think that's already a great first step. I mean, they're going to think twice before, you know, continuing to operate in this way. I think there's hope if we can make it to the end of these cases and get, you know, um, positive court rulings, you know, explicitly stating this is a violation of the First Amendment, that's going to be progress right there. And they're, they're going to think twice, I would hope, <laughs> after we reach that stage. What can individuals do, even lone people on Facebook or Twitter or whatever, if, if we begin to suspect that our posts are being altered or canceled, or if we think that there's something going wrong that, that strikes us as very unusual, what steps can we take? I would say, I mean, right now, I, one recommendation I would make is you could reach out to, you know, a civil rights organization like NCLA, for instance, if you think certain speech that should be protected under the First Amendment is being suppressed. And that's one route to take. Another one, just generally for everyone, I think, is just to remember what the First Amendment is, why it's important, and what it stands for. Because I think part of the problem here is during the pandemic and after, the government has almost turned free speech on its head and described it as something that's almost dangerous. You know, they, the way that they've justified the censorship is that, you know, the speech that they're removing is dangerous for Americans. Um, it could cause us harm, and that's why they have to do it. And I think just everyone taking a step back and thinking about why our founders designed the First Amendment in the first place, which is to protect us from the government suppressing our voices, that's important, too. And I don't think it's taught strongly enough, really, in our school systems. Well, how can people find out more about the work of the new Civil Liberties Alliance? If they want, they can go to our website, which is nclalegal.org. We have all of our cases posted there, along with blogs and other kind of news updates. And we also, we're also a nonprofit, so any donations that people want to make, we're always welcoming right. those as well. <laughs> There's no getting past that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Casey Norman of the New Civil Liberties Alliance, thank you very much for talking with us. This is a key issue of our time, and people have got to be aware and take it seriously. Thank you so much for having me on. well-deserved reputation as a frequent source of rumor, distorted information, and half-baked political theories, the Internet is also a fertile mission field. Christians have embraced the web as a useful tool of evangelization and instruction, Catholics prominent among them. You can find all kinds of religious communication online offered by bishops, priests, nuns, and brothers, but also by lay scholars and even ordinary Catholics who feel the promptings of the Spirit to share their faith. Growth of what you might call the Holy Web has been so rapid and so diverse are its offerings that a group of academics has formed to study the relationship between technology and faith. 
It's called the Network for New Media, Religion, and Digital Culture Studies, and one active participant in that group is Daniela Zupan-Jerome of St. John's School of Theology and Seminary. Professor, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for inviting me to this conversation, and I love the introduction that you shared about how this is growing and spirit-led and involves many people, so it certainly is a worthwhile conversation. I'm very glad to be having that with you today. Well, that's great. This program itself is an example of one way in which faith is communicated online. It, it uses an older technology, radio, which covers a local signal transmission area, but it's also heard on the web as a podcast, so potentially you can hear it around the world, which is pretty astounding when you think about it. What other kinds of things are going on online these days? I think the major shift, as I think about media and its evolutions that we're experiencing today, is really having to do with more and more user participation and more and more people sharing their voices readily and freely and sometimes authoritatively, sometimes just informally. There's just more voices involved. If you compare maybe even 10 or 15 years ago, let's go back maybe 20 years, our experience of the Internet, where most people began gaining access to, to it regularly, it really was kind of like a written resource but on a screen. Hmm. And that's when it started. So we could look things up like in an encyclopedia online or maybe find recipes or things like that, and it would just look just the same but be on the screen. And what started developing over time is that that content, that material on the screen, the information we sought out, started getting rounded out by people's comments and people's interactions and people's input on that. So it became, became an active participatory thing, not just content we find. And I think that's very interesting that continues today. So nowadays, let's say I'm, again, looking up a recipe, you know, as I would have been 20 years ago, to nowadays where it's not just about content and fighting content, but it's also interacting and participating with content that really rounds out the story. And now there's user comments and feedback and maybe multimedia features. And the whole story of a recipe, if you will, is really rounded out by what people are saying about it. So this day and age in digital culture, user participation, users' voices, engagement with content, going back and forth with it, and maybe even tailoring that to a particular interest, that really, really matters. And I think that's really interesting also for faith communication, how we look at information online and how we interact with it and how that impacts how we understand and express our faith. Yeah, I mean, even looking at something like Facebook, you can see a, a, an incredible level of sophistication, really. Some of the presentations that are on there are really quite slick. And, of course, people get back and comment back and forth and even get into arguments and debates. It, 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 it's an extremely interactive experience. I would say that's one of its most more definitive aspects these days, that it's people's voices showing up and going back and forth with each other. Um, sometimes sometimes quite positive and enriching, but sometimes it's challenging, like you said. Sometimes there's negative comments as well. Yeah, there there is a downside to all of this. There's a certain rivalry that comes to the fore every now and then. I know that there's a Facebook group that seems to be dedicated to debunking uh, Catholic theology and oh, <laughs> all, all kinds of things like that. Well, what effect is all this having on faith? Is, is it bringing people closer to the church? Is it becoming a substitute for church? What do you think? 
I hope it's another way by which people can engage with the faith and each other. I really hope it becomes that. I hope, I sincerely hope it's not something that drives people away or displaces people's experience. I, I know that after COVID, especially, we worried a lot whether, you know, online streaming of liturgies would just you know, keep people at home because they wouldn't then bother to come into a church building. And there were a lot of good conversations around that, and I really sincerely hope that's not the case. I think most people who are committed to the faith and want to practice it have a good sense of the value of showing up in person. And just because something is live-streamed, that doesn't necessarily keep committed people away, you know? So I think that, that that's that's an opportunity there to deepen the faith. I think, too, there are so many voices and information that's readily present about the content of faith. I'm in theological education. I teach graduate students about theology and ministry. And even in my pedagogy, I'm conscious of I'm not really the purveyor of content as a professor. I, people could readily find content online. They could Google this and that or the other and find what the Second Vatican Council taught or what Pope said. So I have to think about my pedagogy differently than just content delivery because content is accessible with people who have access to technology for the most part. So I think it's more about learning how to communicate well and be present with each other these days when we have these other venues for connection. Like even though we can connect with each other on social media or through um, technology, is that real presence? Is that an actual encounter? How is that authentic in terms of who God calls us to be as people of faith who are respectful and dignifying of one another? So I think those are the kinds of questions that come up for me, that we have all this content. That's not the challenge. That's not the problem. How do we, though, interact better and more humanly and authentically with each other when a lot of our interactions are taking place through these platforms? So how might we think about that differently? and be faithful in that regard. Yeah, the one thing that strikes me about all of this is that it is, for a large part, uh, lay-driven, uh, It where we used to depend on the clergy to do our evangelizing for us. A lot of uh, highly motivated laymen and women are getting into this thing, starting their own blogs, starting their own YouTube channels. That's been made possible by the simplification of the technology, of course. What does that say about the, the nature of the church? It, it seems that it's somehow changing from the top-down, clergy-dominated model into something new. I think that's really a good point, Bill. I'm glad you brought that up. And I think you're right that who has the public voice of faith and who has access to that it really has changed in digital culture, that really anyone these days with the technology and the time and the commitment can have a public platform, you know, be an influencer of sorts and have a message and share that broadly. Anyone could do One does not need to go to a graduate school for theology or even to be ordained to have that access to a public platform. And I think that is a change from our previous eras in the church where those who, who could speak publicly or publish publicly were often also trained and formed, right? So we don't have that. And I think that's that's an opportunity, but also a challenge. And I think it's an opportunity in the way that, in some ways, based on our baptism, right, all Catholics are called to some aspect of evangelization. We're all called to that in one way or the other. So giving this broad access to public voice invites a lot more people to live into that evangelizing call that we all have from the font. So that if somebody wants to make a commitment 
to be a faithful presence through their own social media page and present positive content. They can do that on their faith, and that's a beautiful thing. Do you think that the institutional church is comfortable with that? Well, here's where the challenge comes in, right? That anyone could start a channel or a platform and call that Catholic. They, they could just use that word. And if they're not actually in official relationship with the bishops or the formal Catholic uh, body, a diocese, then that becomes problematic and confusing, right? And could even be scandalous, because the average person may stumble upon their blog or their video channel and say, oh, this is a Catholic channel, this is Catholic content, because they labeled it as such, but it might actually not, in fact, be so. And so that could be challenging, and it could, you know, steer people in the wrong direction if that content is not authentic and faithful and in line with church teaching then that's a problem there. So I think uh, I think there's a call here for all the church and leadership to lay people, anyone who's involved, is to commit more deeply to actually knowing media literacy and knowing how to interpret content what we come across. A basic exercise I, I do in my classes when I teach on this is I, I ask my students to choose a Catholic website, anything of their choice. It could be a formal diocesan website or it could just be someone's blog, anything they choose. And they have to think through the source of that information and whether that can actually be called Catholic or not. So they have to look at who created it and where they're coming from and what foundation do they have to speak publicly on these things. Is it something formal? Is it something informal? So how do we assess the information that comes at us? I want to support every person's right to have a good, faithful media outlet. If it's a Catholic mom blogging about her experience with her children and infusing that with faith, I think that's really beautiful, you know, and may not have any official affiliation with the bishop of that diocese, but it could still be beautiful and life-giving. So I wouldn't want to take away that opportunity from someone to share their faith that way. But I think in formation, whether just in catechesis or, you know, higher formation, we all need to take up the responsibility to learn how to engage with with words these days and understand where they're coming from. And I think that's on everybody. Yeah, I, I can see that does pose a challenge. It, it requires people to really do their homework and look mm-hmm. more, more deeply into this and be a bit discerning. The big story lately, of course, has been censorship. We know now that government agencies have been colluding with the tech companies to suppress certain types of information. That, that came out strongly during the COVID crisis, for instance. Do you think that this poses any sort of a serious challenge to this movement? I mean, we are in a time when the world is not all that hospitable to Christian faith and religions of, of any sort, really. I think that it is, it is a challenge when we think about what is actually before us on a particular screen, what information makes it before us, and how that is organized by the platform and how and what algorithm is working behind the scenes to present information in a particular order, right? So I think even that is a, a kind of media literacy that we ought to hold, is that the top five, ten things I see on Google or whatever scrolling before my eyes on a social media platform is, is organized in a particular way, and then who has the power to organize that, right? And what is what is left out and what is, what is favored. So that, that's a good discernment. You use the word discernment. I think that's a good discernment point, is just to be aware of how is or information classified and where is that coming from? And sometimes it's because it's paid. People who want to have their website show up higher in a Google search pay for that, right? Or, um, you know, just through the algorithm, like I said. It's just a good discernment point for all of us to be aware of, that it's not neutrally presented. 
I think it also helps from the perspective of faith, and, and they use, again, the word discernment, to have a broader media ecology approach, if you will, which means not to rely on gaining all of our information on just one platform, but to look into things, and rather than just to go with what is presented before us in like a scroll, a social media feed, to go to actual websites that we trust and know to see what information comes up. So, for example, here's a good example for that. Pope Francis is traveling back from a country, back to Italy, and he says some things on the airplane, as he often does. He, te- he tends to speak quite freely in these airplane interviews, and sometimes he says things that are really worth unpacking. And so if news of that or a most recent comment that he's made comes up on social media for someone, whenever that happens, I really owe it to myself as a person of faith and as a theologian to find out, to not just look at what came up on my social media about that, but to actually go back to the Vatican News website and look at the press conference or look at the official word on what was said and educate myself and inform myself in a more well-rounded way. So I think that's a way to push back against maybe ideas of censorship or filtering of information, is knowing my resources that are trusted and going back to them to inform myself, especially when it comes to matters of faith or the church or public theology or things like that. So again, the responsibility is a little bit on me to understand the media context I'm swimming in, right, and understand how information is presented to me and understand where to go for trustworthy information if I'm, I'm ever questioning. It does lay more of a responsibility on us. Just, just because it's on Twitter doesn't necessarily mean it's true. <laughs> <laughs> this is a good, that's a good saying, absolutely. I would live by that. <laughs> <laughs> Daniela Zupan-Jerome of St. John's School of Theology and Seminary, thank you very much for walking us through this uh, very complicated and, and challenging situation. Uh, the world is changing, and I guess we have to prepare ourselves to, uh, to be discerning as, as the change goes on. Thank you kindly for your hospitality today. If you've been listening to these shows online but would like to hear them on the radio, tell your local Catholic station. Free Expression with Bill Castle is available for broadcast free of charge. Ask your Catholic station to contact us by email. Bill Castle at sbcglobal.net. That's B I L L K A S S E L, all one word, Bill Castle at sbcglobal.net. And don't forget to support your local station. In this time of censorship and so called cancel culture, Catholic radio is becoming increasingly important as an alternative media source. Our programming is based on the Word of God and the teaching of His Church, and we bring you the factual, truthful information you aren't getting from the mainstream media. Support Catholic Radio. Your generosity keeps Catholic outlets on the air, and donations to broadcast ministries can be tax-deductible. Urge your friends and relatives to tune in as well. Be with us next time when we explore other aspects of religious communication and look deeper into the great Christian heritage of free expression. Free Expression with Bill Castle is a production of Good Shepherd Catholic Radio and Company Publications, where good books, good music, and good radio are always good company. Dan Curris provided technical assistance, theme, and incidental music are by Dan Adam. 
program was produced and directed by Bill Castle. This is Good Shepherd Catholic Radio.